Oh, good morning again, Mountain View. Thanks for gathering with us online this morning. Uh, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts, but before we dig in, I just want to tell you, for those of you who participated in our reentry survey and also communicated your intentions for giving so that our finance team can really do the best they can at uh, projecting an income for next year. Thank you for participating in those. Uh, we won't ask any more. Uh, if you missed the opportunity, man, let me know and I can send you the links or you can go back to the All Church emails that I sent on Friday and check those out. Uh, we're going to continue in the book of Acts this morning and uh, we're, we're actually going to spend two weeks in Acts chapter 4 and so I'm going to try to cover the first part. I would really encourage you this week, take some time read through Acts chapter 4, write down uh, what, some, what are some lessons that you can learn uh, from what happens in Acts chapter 4. There's this rising population of people who object to Christianity. And the reason they reject to Christianity is because Christianity claims that Jesus is the only way to God. And so this has been one of the primary objections to Christianity throughout history. Here's the deal. If someone falls into this category, then they likely follow a very unspoken rule in our society that says, don't tell people that their religion is wrong, that what they're doing, what, what, what faith they follow is wrong. And many people think that, you know what, it is wrong to make any religion superior to someone else's religion. In other words, many in our society believe that Christianity is too restrictive, and not only too restrictive, but that Christianity really, people won't be quiet about it. They talk too much about it. And what happens in Acts chapter 4 is Peter is going to address these issues. And these issues are really relevant to us even today. They're relevant in Peter's day, which means they, they've been relevant and they've crossed the span of time as far as relevancy is concerned. Actually, these objections have been in the existence since the beginning of the church. The movement began the early days of the church. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to dig in, and we're going to study this. We're going to look at this a little bit this morning. So I want to, I want to study each verse. I want to study each section and, and help us capture in our minds what's really happening here. So Acts chapter 4, verse 1, it starts this way. And as they were speaking to the people, and I'm going to pause right there. Who are the people that they're speaking to? Well, this is right after that miracle that we talked about last week. If you remember, we studied the miracle where Peter and John are on the way to the temple for the hour of prayer, and they see a lame man, a crippled man, who's brought to this gate called the Beautiful Gate every day to beg for alms, to, to find his livelihood, to be able to supply food for his day and housing for him. And so he's brought there every day. Peter and John walk by, they look at him, they make him look at them, and they say, we don't have any silver and gold, but what we do have, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the man stood up, he started running and jumping and leaping through the temple courts. And so this is, this is a huge thing. And so all of a sudden, uh, Peter and John, they're trying to explain now to the people, the crowds who are there, that this is evidence, evidence of Jesus's power to save people. And so look again at verse Four, or chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so here we have it. Some of these people who are in the crowd, they are annoyed because Jesus was doing, uh, because these, sorry, Peter and John were teaching the people. Not only were they teaching the people, but they were also proclaiming that Jesus had 
rose from the dead, that he was alive, that he was no longer in the tomb. And so Peter and John were teaching this, which annoyed, it disturbed the, the, the priests and the Sadducees and the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law. Why? Because these men were teachers. These men, the Sadducees and the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the elders, they were the teachers. And what Peter was doing, Peter was teaching, and it was a threat to their authority. They didn't like it so much. And so this bothered them about Jesus too. Ultimately, they crucified Jesus. They killed Jesus. Now they had a new group of people that they had to deal with, something that they had to deal with. They were teaching with the same authority that Jesus taught. Worse than that, people were believing in what they were teaching. And so this wasn't going well for them. And so that second issue that annoyed them was the fact that they were teaching and preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus had rose from the dead. And so Peter and John were teaching about Jesus and the central truth of Jesus' teaching as we've studied and learned through our whole study in the book of Acts was that Jesus is alive. And they were teaching this, that God had raised him from the dead. And if the disciples had been teaching just on the resurrection, the Pharisees at least would have said, yeah, we believe in a resurrection at the end when everything's complete, there will be a resurrection of our bodies. But the Sadducees, however, they did not believe in the resurrection. But what made it a problem for both groups of people was that they were teaching and preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then it literally changes everything about us. If it is true, then it is absolutely true that Jesus is who he said he was. So let's look again in Acts chapter 4, verse 3. And it says this, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And I think what Luke's doing here is Luke is really pointing out to us that there is a power. And the power is not in favor right now of the disciples. As a matter of fact, the power is in the authorities. It's in the religious leaders. It's in the teachers and the elders. Because the church at this point, it's not very strong. We get this number 5,000. Now, compared to the population in Jerusalem, sure. But, but here's what's going on. There are very few disciples compared to the unbelieving Jews who lived in Jerusalem. These were the early days. The gospel had not extended far. Remember, Jesus told the disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, this is Jerusalem still. There were few leaders. None of them had experience as leaders. They, they were a small band measured against the total number of the Jewish people, and they were weak. They were powerless. They were broke. They, they, they had a leader who ascended into heaven, and, and when you measure this against the rulers of the day, everything was against them. And so Acts chapter 4 Verse 5 says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And this is the question that they were asking right? And it's interesting to me that the way Luke lists for us those who were in opposition to Peter and John. In the first six verses, he lists no fewer than 11 different individuals or categories of individuals who are opposed to Christianity. And then three of them are in verse 1, the priest, the captain, and the temple guard, and the Sadducees. But then Luke chapter 5, he lists three more categories, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law. 
But then Luke also describes for us and gives us specific names, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, who are likely all priests. And so Luke wants to be very intentional about telling us that these are people with authority. There are people with money. There are people with power and education. And this sets them apart from everybody else compared to the disciples. And verse 8 says this. Then Peter, remember we talked about this, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? You speak. And so filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed by healing a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. In other words, Peter is saying, listen, if you're actually putting us on trial, if you're actually going to accuse us of something, if if you're going to put us on trial and accuse us for healing this man, then let it be known that we didn't do it. It didn't come from our own power. It came from the power that was given to us through Jesus. Jesus healed this man who was crippled. Jesus healed this man who was lame. It wasn't us. Verse 11 says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which he became the cornerstone. This is a powerful verse right here, verse 11. Underline it in your Bibles, highlight it in your Bible app, because this is so important. Buildings were built with the cornerstone first, and the cornerstone made the everything about the building different. It was the it was the critically piece, the critical piece of the building project, the entire shape of the building, the, the height of the building, the dimensions of the building were all determined and based on this strength or the strength of the cornerstone. And what Peter is saying is, listen, Jesus is that cornerstone. And in you builders, you've rejected the cornerstone, which means it's all going to fall apart. None of it's going to work. But in my life, Peter is saying, he, he is the cornerstone. And therefore, what I build and what happens here and what God builds, it's going to last. Verse 12 says, and there is salvation. Here it is. In no one else, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so far with Peter, we've had two really long sermons. But in this testimony, he keeps it simple. He keeps it simple. He says, listen, we didn't heal this guy. Jesus did. He says, listen, Jesus, the man you killed on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. He is alive. He is well. And he is sitting at the right hand of God, holding the world in his hands. And this is the reality. If you want salvation, salvation can come from nobody else except through Jesus. So verse 13 tells us, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. (laughs) And I love this because these rulers had killed Jesus. But now suddenly there's an entirely new group of people to contend with. And this group of people, they were like Jesus They had been with them. They could tell because Jesus rubs off on us when we are in relationship with him. And they they had not been to school. They've not had an education. They were fishermen and tax collectors and uneducated people, but they were 
teaching the way Jesus taught. They were teaching what Jesus taught with authority and with boldness and with courage, and the people were listening to them. And so they were accused of being with Jesus. They could tell. I think what a great thing to be accused of. What a great thing to experience this simple man from heaven hung out with these tax collectors and this fisherman and these fishermen and tax collectors became like Jesus. And the religious leaders accused him of this. Verse 14 says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Listen, they wanted to dismiss the disciples. They just wanted this to end, but they had a problem. And the problem was, here's this man that most of them had seen every single day walking into the temple for prayer time. They knew him. They recognized him. And suddenly he can walk. He hasn't been able to walk his whole life. He'd been carried to the gate. And so they had no opposition. Verse 15 says this. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, the council conferred with one another. That's what they could ask. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among people, because we don't want all the crippled people getting legs up and walking. So since we don't want that to happen, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They can't even say it in the name of Jesus. So they, so they called Peter and John and the disciples and they charged them, here it is, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so Peter, Peter and John know the power of Jesus healed this man. Here's the thing. They also know that the Sadducees know this. And the Sadducees know that Peter and John know this about the Sadducees that they know. I, I know it's kind of like water to water and, and, and you get what I'm saying, bread or bread. But the Sadducees they're declaring, listen, we have power, we have authority, we have resources, and if you are allowed to preach like you're preaching, we want you to understand that we've given you permission to do it. And if we decide you are no longer allowed to preach, then you can't do it anymore because we have power, we have authority, we are, we are the rulers of the day, and anytime we want, we can arrest you and we can put you in jail. So Acts chapter, nine, or chapter 4, verse 19 says this, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But listen to what Peter and John say. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have to. We have to speak about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21 says, And when they had further threatened them, threatened them by saying, No, we are serious. No more healings. No more miracles. If we see any lepers without their spots, we know who did it. We know who's responsible for it. So they let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God that a man had been healed. And so last week we spent so much time looking at what the meaning is behind the miracles. And what I want to do is I want to look this week at how Peter handled the objections to Christianity specifically the objection to that Jesus is the only way, that salvation can only be found in Jesus. This, is, this has been a controversy since the early church. This has been a controversy since the beginning of the church. The disciples aren't in trouble because they privately believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
the disciples are in trouble because they have convinced at this point 8,000 heads of household that Jesus is alive, that Jesus rose from the dead. And they've told everyone who disagrees with them that they are wrong about Jesus and that they need to repent and they need to change their hearts. They need to open their hearts. They are in trouble because they preach that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Oh, the world hates these kind of statements. And so the fundamental question about religion throughout history has been, are there many paths to God? I mean, can't we be this and this and this and this and this? All these different religions, all these different good works and all these different faiths and all these, don't they all kind of lead us to a path to God? Listen, if you want to be laughed at, if you want to be scorned, if you want to be hated, even if you want to be persecuted and testify to the claims that Jesus claimed. Say, say to people, Jesus is the only Savior. That, that, that only by an obedient relationship with Jesus can we escape hell. The world will fight to death over this because nothing is so offensive to man to human beings as teaching that we cannot save ourselves, that this is out of our control, that we cannot choose our own way to salvation, and that if we're going to be saved, then we have to be saved through the one who God appointed to save us, which is Jesus. And so what Peter does is he addresses one of the main complaints against Christianity. What's the main complaint? That salvation is only found in Jesus. And so in Acts 4, Peter addresses some of the most consequential objections to Christianity. Uh, one of the ones that I hear often is this. Well, isn't it conceited? Isn't it conceited to claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Isn't it arrogant? Isn't it pompous to say that? Well, why did Peter insist on this? Peter knew what the religious leaders believed. Peter knew what the Sadducees believed. Peter knew what the Pharisees believed. Peter's an intelligent man. He knew that by saying this, he was going to risk his life. And so why would he take this chance? Well, he was saying it because there is nobody else like Jesus. There's nobody else like Jesus. There's no other man who is God except Jesus. There is no other man, one who would die for the sins of other people besides Jesus. This is why Peter claimed it. And so some may say, but that sounds so narrow. Yeah, it, it is. And some might say, well, it's so exclusive. Yes, it is exclusive. And some might say, well, it sounds intolerant. Yes, in a sense, it is intolerant. But guess what? It's also very true. So look at verse 13 again. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they're preaching the boldness of being able to say this, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common man, as Luke describes them. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And I love this moment because Luke was certainly a friend of Peter and John, and so Luke's writing this, this historical account of what happened in the early church. And I imagine that at some point, Peter and John heard about what Luke said about him. I would have been saying to Luke, Luke, dude, we're friends. Why are you insulting me so much here? You're calling me a commoner. But Peter, Peter is not claiming here. What Luke's trying to get at is Peter is not claiming to be smarter than anybody else. He's not claiming to be wiser than anybody else. What Peter is saying is in verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We've been with Jesus. 
We can't help but talk about it. We can't help but speak about it. We've seen all these things. We've heard all of these things. We spent time with Jesus, and we can't help but talk about it. In other words, Peter's saying is this is nothing to do with being smarter or wiser. It has nothing to do with our IQs or has nothing to do with our, our education and our degrees and our finances and our resources and our wealth. It has nothing to do with any of that. But what Peter is saying is this. Listen, there was this guy who called me and I followed him. And guess what? You killed him. You hung him on the cross. One of the worst punishments of the time. But guess what? You buried him in a tomb. You, you guarded that tomb with a Roman soldier. And Jesus escaped death. And he came back to life. How do I know this? Because we ate dinner with him. We spent time with him. We watched him ascend into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God right now, holding the world in his hands. And so we have to decide. We have to decide. Do we believe what you tell us? Do we have to believe what you tell us? Or do we believe the man who came back from death? Which one do we believe? Do we believe you? who tells us it didn't happen? Or do we believe him who actually predicted it, did it, and then proved it? Think about it. Peter's not being arrogant. He's not being selfish. He's not trying to be smarter than anybody else. Believing Jesus and believing that Jesus is who Jesus said he is is actually very humbling because it means that we have to admit that we weren't smart enough to figure it all out that we're not intelligent enough to save ourselves, that we can't do this on our own. And so God had to come down on earth in the flesh of Jesus to show us the way. Think about it. Peter is probably a little raw still. You remember what happened? He was in the courtyard the night Jesus was arrested. And he was watching Jesus be questioned, smacked in the face and spit upon and a young girl comes up to Peter and says, Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter says, uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. It wasn't me. I don't know the man. Three times, three times he denied that he knew Jesus. And so here's Peter saying, Listen, I am so glad that Jesus came back from the dead. He restored me. He restored my relationship. And that would not have happened had he not risen from the dead. And so Peter's screaming loudly that, that salvation is a gift from God. It's a gift of grace. And all claims, by the way, about religion, all claims, for instance, they're exclusive. All of them are. For instance, if you say, well, only good people get to go to heaven. Well, who are you excluding? Bad people, right? anyone or we say this well you're judging them because you're they're judging you about listen this whole conversation about that's my job to judge or your job or we you can't judge me right as soon as we go down that path christian or not christian guess what we're doing we start creating a list of who's in and who's out and who can belong and who can't belong all religious viewpoints all of them all religious viewpoints are exclusive but the gospel of jesus offers a very unique exclusivity that is inclusive. Man, write that down. Write that down. Because the gospel of Jesus is a different kind of exclusive. 
Because the gospel teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on us. It's not based on our moral record. It's not based on our wealth. It's not based on our education. It's not based on our race. It's not based on our political viewpoint. It's not based on our socioeconomic status. God gives salvation to anyone who is willing to believe that he rose from the dead. Accept this and obey what he commanded us. And I think what we do is we have to go back to chapter 3 and really see that this crippled man is a picture of us. The crippled man was not allowed to go into the temple to worship God, to pray to God. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, it actually clarifies that anybody crippled, anybody who had a disability, anybody who was lame, anyone with a disease were not allowed into the temple. We are like this. And that's the picture that Peter wants these religious leaders to see, that, that without Jesus, they don't belong because we've all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. Therefore, salvation is a gift of grace to anyone who is crippled by their sin. And when the truth and power intersect, guess what happens? Everything about our lives begin to change. Everything does. The gospel changes everything about our lives. And that's what Peter's saying. I cannot deny this. I've seen and I've heard and I've experienced this change. I've got to talk about it and tell people about it and preach about it. I've got to share it with as many people as I possibly can. Verse 11 says this, this Jesus is the stone that you rejected. You rejected. He was the cornerstone. And you builders rejected this. Listen, this is what I want you to understand. When you experience somebody who is a Christian, who is arrogant, arrogant with the claims of Christianity, I want you to understand that they may believe the message religiously, but they don't actually understand the message because it hasn't changed them yet. You have to be changed by it. You have to experience the change that comes with the power of the resurrection. And so one of the big questions is, listen, is Jesus really the only way? But another big question is this, aren't we free to choose religion as a matter of preference and a matter of choice? And can't we decide what's best for us? This comes from an early philosopher, a modern philosopher. His name's Immanuel Kant, and this is what he said. Religions are subjectively helpful, but not objectively true. So religion can help you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Religion can help you be a better person, a better employee, a better all these things, but it doesn't mean it's true. And so what's happened in society, even today, a lot of us believe that we can kind of have it our own way, right? That religion decisions are, are just preferences. They're just a matter of preference. For example, we can't judge right or wrong. Just like we can't judge whether you like Pepsi or Coke or Tillamook or Umqua or Waffle House or IHOP or think of what other McDonald's or Wendy's or those shoes or those shoes. We've, we've watered down Christianity to a simple choice of preference. But the problem with this is that Christianity is based on a historical claim. And the historical claim is that Jesus rose from the dead, whether or not that actually happened makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus rose from the dead, religion is no longer a personal preference about which beliefs make us feel warm and fuzzy at night. Either a real power brought Jesus out of the grave or it did not. 
And the same power that brought him out of the grave is the very power that comes upon us today as believers. This is what was promised. And so we have to ask the question. We have to wrestle with this. We have to ask ourselves, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he? And what I want you to do this morning is I really want you to examine yourself. I want you to look deep into your soul. I really want you to ask yourself, listen, do I believe, do I believe Jesus rose from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is absolutely without a question the answer for salvation. And so the question that we have to ask is, do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do I believe with every fiber of my being that he absolutely rose from the dead? And if so, then I have to be willing to follow his rules of salvation and not my own. I have to follow his rules for salvation, his suggestion on how to be saved, which is through his son, Jesus. God accomplished for us what we could not do by ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. It's not possible and so we have to be changed and transformed. That's why at Mountain View we say we're affecting life change. How? Through the power of the resurrection. That's how. You have to ask yourself, did Jesus raise from the dead? And if so, do I believe it? Do I hold it tightly? Verse 12 says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so there's a couple of lessons from Peter I want to share with you. And here's why I want to share them. As we look at Acts chapter 4, I think that there are some critical lessons that we can learn because it is relevant for us today. It's so relevant. And here's what I mean by this. Peter and John experienced for the first time the first persecution of the church. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes upon him. 3,000 people are added to their number that day. Acts chapter 3, they heal this crippled man who had been crippled from birth, and he was lame, and he starts running and jumping and leaping with excitement in the temple courts. And the crowd comes around, and they preach this message, and more people turn to faith in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, because Jesus is alive. And so in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, we have recorded for us when the church, the beginning of the church, the disciples begin to experience for the very first time a little bit of persecution. And I don't know if on this occasion, the first persecution, Peter suddenly remembered what Jesus had said about persecution. But it might be when he was dragged from the Sanhedrin, he recalled that Jesus prophesied persecution for those who would follow him. Look at this, Mark chapter 13, verse 9. It says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, Beyond your guard... For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and you will stand before kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are going to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit in you that is speaking. And this is what Jesus is saying. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is children, child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you, you will be hated because of my name. 
But the one who endures to the end, the one who perseveres, the one who pushes on, the one who presses on will be saved. Man, this is so important for us right now because I know a lot of Christians, I watch social media, I listen to articles, I listen to sermons, I'm listening to the Christian world, we're, we're up in arms right now. Because I think somewhere we bought into the idea that Christianity would be easy, that it would be simple, that we wouldn't face any difficulty or hardship because because we're in good with God. He's going to protect us from that. But yet Jesus even taught his disciples, they're going to hate you. They're going to drag you. They're going to beat you. They're going to do all of these things. They're going to tear down your witness. They're going to do everything they can to close you off and keep you out. Don't be anxious about that. But speak. Speak about what? All that we've seen and all that we've heard. Preach it. Tell them I'm alive and well and I'm at the right hand of God. I'm not distant. I'm not far. I'm involved in the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of the mess. It's too easy for us Christians to stand back and shake our fist or cross our arms and say, this isn't right. But you know what? Not once. Not once in Acts chapter 4 did Peter raise his fist and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, this is against the law, this is my rights, my right, all these things, right? What Peter said is, listen, I know a guy, I know a guy, and his name is Jesus. And I want to tell you about this guy because you guys rejected him, and you guys put him on the cross. And you buried him in a tomb, and you guarded that tomb with a Roman soldier? But guess what? He's alive. How do I know it? Because I ate dinner with him, and I spent time with him. He restored my soul. He made me new again. He empowered me with the Holy Spirit, and I stand here today telling you that he is sitting at the right hand of God right now. He's in the middle of the brokenness. He's in the middle of the mess. He's in the middle of the dysfunction. He's in the middle of the hatred and the racism. He's in the middle of the political nightmare. He's in the middle of all of that. And so what are the lessons I learned from Peter in Acts chapter 4? Listen, the disciples, they were bold. What do I mean by boldness? They didn't hold back. Peter said, listen, I didn't heal the guy. Jesus healed the guy. They preached the truth. And so they thought, well, by which name do you speak and which name do you hear? In the name of Jesus, we didn't do this. Boldness. But guess what? They were humble too. Did you notice? They showed honor and respect to the religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin, to the priests. They spoke the truth with boldness, but they were humble. They're humble and they're gracious. Why? Because they understood that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that these religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests and the, and the temple guard and the captain and all of these people, the, Jesus died for them too. And he understood that if they were going to hear his message, then he needed to maintain humility and he needed to be gracious. But they were unshakable, absolutely unshakable. And they said, even if you lock us up, we still have to talk about what we've seen and experienced. This is why you have to ask yourself, have I really been changed by the power of the resurrection through the Holy Spirit? 
Because if you're just like everybody else, being locked up and told to shut up, we might do it. But no, we got to preach. We got to preach. They were driven too. They had a sense of urgency. They understood that they have to tell everyone as fast as they could. And I wonder about myself and I wonder for you, as a disciple of Jesus today, could you be defined as bold and humble, unshakable and driven? And if not, why not? And my hunch is it has something to do with whether or not you really, really believe Jesus is alive. So I'm going to invite you as we sing this song, examine your heart, look into your soul, answer for yourself. Do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And have I let the reality of that truth and the power of the Holy Spirit change me? into a person who is bold, humble, unshakable, and driven. Ask yourself this question as we sing.